HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins. I work for Fairway Markets in the New York area. And we're awfully proud to support Heritage Radio. And we care so much about everything that goes on out here at Roberta's and their studio because they talk to people who are, are serious about food. And that's what we are at Fairway is we're serious about food. We, we just care very deeply about, about you as a, as a customer and how you cook and what you cook with and how you entertain. And, and that's why we love to support Heritage Radio because it, it, it's pretty much the same thing. It's wanting to, to find happiness through serious food and people who are serious about it and, and care about learning everything there is to learn about it. And that's, that's we're kindred spirits. If it's something worth having in your kitchen, you're going to find it at, at Fairway. And if there's somebody worth talking to about food, you're going to find them on Heritage Radio, and we will be supporting you guys for a long, long time. At Fairway, I'm your personal grocer, Steve Jenkins, Fairway Market. And welcome to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, your host, taping at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, this beautiful rainy day. Just want to make a quick shout out at the top of the show to Joe Craigbaum. Happy birthday to you. Uh, Karen, you're going to have to wait till your birthday's on a Tuesday to get a live shout out. But uh, a happy one to you, Joe. Uh, today's show, very exciting to have uh, Anders Reistet and Michael Yube glassblowers extraordinaire here in Brooklyn. But it's not so much just about the craft of glassblowing as it is what brought them to the craft of glassblowing. Michael Ayub has uh, been an executive chef in Brooklyn, in New York, since the early 1990s, since if not... I remember. Yeah, <laughs> since before I was born. I'd, Probably. Yeah, kind of, <laughs> I, can, I can say. Um, he actually won his first... 
prize for blown sugar in 1981 at the Society Culinaire Philanthropique. So, I mean, yeah, I was one at that time. Um, many other, you know, uh, medals since then for plate design and et cetera through the 80s through 90s now owns Fornino in Park Slope. Actually used to own the same space in, uh, in, the, 19- 90s, in yeah. the 90s through aughts uh, when it was called Cucina. Also has Fornino Pizza in Williamsburg. Um, Anders uh, is a I can honestly say multi-generational or, uh, you know, he has a family lineage of Swedish glassblowers. When I was in his studio on uh, Fourth Street and Bond in the Gowanus area, he showed me a picture of, was that your grandfather in 1980? No, it was just one of the factories yeah. in Sweden at the same time. Yeah, period. but I mean, your great-grandfather, your grandfather skipped yep. a generation with your father, but then yep, on to you, glassblower, uh, you know, in the blood. Um, kind of just wanted to start off the show with what is glassblowing. Uh, I took it quickly as a course in mass art for two weeks, but don't feel like I got the, you know, breadth that you guys, you know, have. Michael started glassblowing in, what, maybe the About 90s? ten years ago, yeah. Yeah, at um, Urban at, Glass. Urban, yeah. Where, where is that exactly? Urban is on uh, 47 Rockwell Place right here in Brooklyn. It's around the corner from the BAM uh, uh, Majestic Theater. Oh, also, I mean, it's still here in operation. Still here, absolutely. I said, and Anders... How did you start? You were telling me that you used to work in restaurants and someone offered you a couple extra bucks to help yeah. them in the studio. I uh, started in uh, high school in Newport, Rhode Island. I, I was working in restaurants and uh, didn't totally love it. I mean, I was dishwasher to prep cook. And uh, I walked by a little glass shop at the end of uh, the street and they kind of literally dragged me in and said, you know, we'll pay you a buck more an hour to, <laughs> to help us make this stuff. And I, I had no idea other than I knew my grandfather did it and, I just went from there. Just it was a high school job. Yeah, and Michael, what was your transition? Because uh, I had noted at the top of the show that you won in 1981 for blown sugar, but why why blown glass? Well, sugar, you know, the, blown sugar is uh, an art that's kind of really kind of died. Those little plastic swans on your wedding cake was supposed to be sugar. Yeah, uh, years ago, um, and actually, it's the same bubble. Uh, so we just, you know, with the sugar, we work with a four-inch copper pipe or a four-inch piece of glass, or with with, with the uh, with glass, you work with uh, molten glass, which is over two thousand degrees, and at that point, you work with a four-foot metal rod. But it's still the same bubble, and it's still the same technique. Uh, once you get over the heat, you know, you've kind yeah. of got it done. Yeah. I mean, what is the heat difference? What What is sugar melted at? Sugar, you know, we go for hard crack sugar at 300 degrees, then we bring it down a little. We're probably working around 180 degrees, um, whereas, you know, we're taking glass out of the furnace at a little over 2,000 degrees and probably working with it around 1,600. Wow. Wow. And Anders, I remember walking into your studio and instantly sweating. Uh, what, what was your oven piping at that day? Uh, twenty-two fifty. We were melting that day. So, and what specifically is that oven called? Uh, the, where the glass sits is usually called a furnace. Yeah. And then there's various uh, other reheating ovens: uh, a glory hole, annealer, garage. There's a couple other, uh, but the furnace is the main, the main uh, piece of equipment that keeps the glass. Yeah. Open. You know, uh, walking in Anders' studio, and you look at this kind of wheelbarrow, this bucket of what kind of looks like powder. Um, and it could be sugar. I mean, there are many similarities to this. I, 
you know, looking at glass, you never think that glass had a form prior to that. Right. Well, um, glass has to be cooked. Yeah, yeah. And if you don't cook it properly, it's it's very cordy or bubbly. So there's a lot of technique to cooking the glass also. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, so I mean, there are obviously those corollaries, but then there are, you know, differences. What What is different about, you know, well, Michael, from your aspect. Forget hot. Yeah. <laughs> the actual temperature. But, I mean, the technique, too. Do you have to tweak it a little bit more? Do you have to be more careful? Is it more fragile? Well, actually, you know, with, when you blow sugar, you only get one shot at it. So you want to try to blow it. You know, once you get it on the pipe, you want to try to blow it as cool as possible, which this is where you'll get the highest shine. And you don't have an opportunity to reheat it. Whereas with glass, you it, you can shape it in form in, in steps and continue to reheat it. So actually, glass is a little bit easier than sugar. Um, granted, you don't work with as the volume that you do in sugar as with glass. But uh, the point being that you know being able to reheat is you know it could really makes makes a very big difference. Yeah. How many times can you actually reheat glass until it starts uh, falling apart? I don't think they're really. I mean, more just. How, how many hours you're willing? I mean, some pieces can take six, eight hours. I mean, yeah, but I don't. At some point, it probably would break down. Right, right. We've but had I've one batch that really <laughs> stunk at one point at Urban, but that's besides the point. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, but uh, you can really. It, it doesn't lose anything in the heat. The glass doesn't lose anything in the heat. Whereas with the sugar, I'm losing moisture. Yeah. So that's and, and the temperature. You know, it really makes a much difference. So the first process of glass blowing is taking that powdered glass and making it into a clean uh you know very shiny piece of glass yeah uh, just it's a chemical reaction that happens that silica and some others in uh basically silica soda ash get to a certain temperature and magic happens it literally (laughs) defies almost anybody that continues you know their whole life does their whole life just get it hot and come in in the morning and it's clear yeah yeah it's it's high level chemistry and physics but i don't yeah I don't how many hours do you actually have to bake it at that extreme high temperature depends on how much you have but let's say basically overnight it usually is done in the morning like six eight hours something like that but six eight hours at over two thousand degrees just yeah. to change it when it's black yeah. it's done yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and then sugar how long did it take you actually heat and blow sugar well sugar you 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 heat it up to 300 degrees and then you cool it down so we actually don't use regular I uh, wouldn't do it on the on the furnace at home. Yeah, uh, I actually use like per- propane for the fact that propane burns hotter and then get it up faster. Yeah, so I mean it's funny that something. Well, I mean, sugar doesn't take that long, doesn't last that long. Glass, you have to put time in, but you get that much more yeah. time forever. Yeah. Glass is forever out of it. So both Anders and Michael are glass blowers that do art installation aside from just you know glassware and you know little houseware projects. Um, how does that kind of artistic side, uh, you know, influence your sculpture? Uh, because, Anders, you, you work with, who is it, Josiah? McElhinney. McElhinney. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of work does he do? He's doing uh, sculpture, uh, conceptual art, sculpture, installation, large installation pieces, mostly. Um, yeah. So I'm helping. And pretty much all of it is has some glass aspect to it, so... A lot of it is traditional vessels uh, that are incorporated into larger installations. But uh, so my background in kind of traditional glass blowing, you know, works within that. But it's not really shown as glass. Yeah. 
And Michael, do you feel like your forms are more untraditional from, you know, mine are a little bit more unique. Um, but let me interject. You know, yeah. Josiah is probably one of the top glass blowers in the country, yeah. if not the world, right now. He's been uh, showcased in museums all over the world. Yeah. So I just wanted to make sure that everybody understood who Josiah oh, was. Oh yeah, he's I really was, a great, great guy. And to me, I was perusing his website and a video of Anders explaining working for Josiah for however many years it's been. But yeah, it's it's something to be seen and behold. So. Uh, props given to josiah (laughs) but um your installations uh, michael's had you know installations at cucina uh mike and tony's steakhouse uh cronkite restaurant and wine bar uh fornino even david burke the venetian hotel in las vegas foxwoods hotel in connecticut fishtail harbor i mean and that many more places how do you approach you know uh, different spaces different restaurants with your you know singular no, each aesthetic. one each one is you know, unique to itself um usually contracted by either a designer or a decorator or in my in my own case you know I, I do all the lighting for all of my own restaurants but you know every space you know has different issues you know uh, in vegas everything is a water for some reason in the desert you have to have water yeah <laughs> so we we did this big installation with about 150 glass rods that I had water coming down the center of these rods, and then it was going back up. So we had this big fountain in the middle of this restaurant. Um, in Foxwoods, we had uh, another installation that was against the wall. You know, with the, one of these really was very you know sculptural that had these spears with heads and all kinds of other things. Uh, in Harbor, um, which was a seafood restaurant, I had a uh, chandelier that it was 12 foot wide and it had about 175 pieces to it and it had almost arms very octopus like yeah so it was very uh it was very you know so each space brings its own you know situations and problems yeah and and there's you're trying to do kind of like glassware and more traditional forms at the moment mm-hmm. um more for what higher clientele correct mm-hmm. Um, but when we were talking the other day, there was a very interesting thing that you said about Rydal kind of having the stranglehold on the industry at the moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, was it a marketing book? Yep. Yeah, it was like how to better market yourself or something. Yeah. Like that. And what was the example on the cover? It was the Riedel, uh, you know, fortune that had been built off just selling wine glasses with this marketing. I just thought it was genius. Yeah. So, I mean... What's the difference between you and Rydell in the sense that you're both making very traditional forms? Well, uh, I mean, they're a pretty relatively large factory. I mean, they're a factory with I th- most of it is they have a handmade component that's made in Austria. I've actually been there and checked it out. I'm so impressed with their <laughs> with the market. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, they have 40 guys making stuff. I'm just one where the... That's what I. That's what you know. Intrigued me is that they basically only make one kind of glass, and that's clear glasses that have, like I was saying, have like just cornered the wine glass uh, market. And but they can't change, and they occasionally do little changes, like they'll do a color design for a little while, and I don't think it's very successful for them. But uh, uh, I can change in an hour. I yeah. Can, and color and design pattern and so on is what I offer. What that was my. Because uh, your your website's rightset uh, dot com. Your last yep. name. Mm-hmm. Let's spell that out too. R y d s t e d t dot com. But your studio is called R y b Studio. Well, I actually had uh, I my website is just uh, I just bought my name. When yeah, I, I got lucky. And uh, 
but I started a company with someone else actually, RYB Design, and uh, did some shows and to develop a line of uh, more colorful homeware vases and bowls and stuff that um, still exists. I'm just uh, kind of just st- actually struggling with the the idea and physically doing uh, a design business at just in glass in New York. I think there's a ton of potential. I know a lot oh, yeah. of people, other people are doing it, but they're, I don't know anybody that doesn't do it with a lot of struggle and especially financially. But um, I just, part of the reason I think I'm here is that I started to see other, other avenues. So uh, for creating glass and that brought me fulfillment. I just, you know, coming up with my designs, RYB designs and going to a sh- trade show and stuff just kind of started to bum me out. So yeah, I, it's still there, but I don't know. I'm not sure where it's going to go. Yeah, it's yeah. it's interesting though that you talk about color um, because Michael's sculptures are very colorful. Uh, the last one you were mentioning uh, is that the red one with the tubes going up and down, or is that that the Venetian? That's the Venetian. Yeah, with the, 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 that's all red. But I, I do work with a ton of color. Yeah, but you think of glass and it's mainly clear. Um, then you think of well, I mean, there's obviously stained glass, which is more of the religious sect than the restaurant. Um, but then you look towards candy and there's not much clear candy is there no actually uh, the uh, it when you would cook it if you were to cook hard cracked sugar the the closest you could get to it is a slight tan uh for it to be hard yeah um but normally it's always a little cuz and then once you pull it uh if you pull it you'll actually stretch the glucose molecules and it becomes white yeah so I mean, it's kind of interesting that one of the biggest rifts, I guess, between glass blowing and candy blowing, um, or sugar blowing, might be that there's actually color in glass. Or I mean, there's color in candy, but not so much in traditional glassware at restaurants these days. Right, right. The glassware, I think, in restaurants is. I mean, it's so difficult to work with, unless you have a color pot, which uh, not many people do. Uh, probably a small studio like his, he could definitely make up a little color pot. But in these commercial things it's really uh it's mostly clear yeah so they just pump them out plus people you know breaking right. glasses and such uh, right. you know might as well have that big uniform singular non-color at right. a point right. we're going to take a quick break and talk a little bit more about the differences between a uh, glass and sugar uh the introduction of color and you know where they hope these two things will come together and grow i'm michael harlan turkel you've been listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.com back listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.com i'm your host michael harlan turkel here today with michael ayub from fornino pizza in williamsburg fornino restaurant in 
Park Slope and Anders Rydstad of Rydstad.com. <laughs> that was easy. Glass blowers. Uh, but also sugar blowers. Well, Michael is. Um, but Anders also has a lot of you know, life lived within good food and good wine. But going back to the idea of clear versus color, um, you know, in restaurants, it's pretty much clear glasses. Um, why, why do you think that is? Um, it's simply a, a cost factor. Yeah. Um, very, very rarely do you see a colored glass in restaurants. I, think, I don't think I can think of a restaurant that's had colored glasses. Um, and also in some of the colors, there's actually some lead component to it, which at that point would probably be a big yeah, no-no. Yeah, a, li- a little bit no-no. Yeah, but, small detail. Yeah, but I mean, Anders, you're trying to approach clientele at this time, and are you trying to talk them away from the traditional clear glass into colored to different forms? Well, I mean, to me, the other detail of the glass is that, you, especially with wine or even cocktail, is that you should be able to see the color. I mean, that's a huge component in wine that I have to fulfill when I say if I'm going to add color, I'm pretty limited to specifically in a wine glass, the stem. Um, and even that can throw sometimes irritates some serious wine people. But yeah. uh, I mean, some gla- it, yeah, basically, in my opinion, I wouldn't want to see uh, the actual bowl of any of the glasses be colored. Other right. than, it's just, it's distracting. If, if you're into the drink, you should be able to see the, co- there's usually something going on worth looking at, too. But, uh, yeah, I mean, color and glasses, to me, yeah, only the stem, really. And But um, unless you're doing something funky, like there's plenty of funky, gla- you know, restaurants that might require or ask yeah. for a lot of color. But uh, well, besides the blue margarita glass. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, salted rim. But it's just funny that it's become so standardized and not outside of the box that you have, for the most part, white plates and clear glasses. Are you guys hoping to maybe change that idea and effect in restaurants i mean michael do you serve colored glasses or no do you, no, no it's no. all Just remember one thing about restaurant glasses they never last too long yeah <laughs> so you know i would love to have his set of his glasses for yeah. the restaurant however you know you would have to you know assassinate the waiter once he put a tray <laughs> of glasses down yeah. on the floor so it's more for uh, specific people that you really trust or you know their home address right. and you can find them afterwards <laughs> so, um but then back to kind of candy blowing again not just the skills of, you know, actually blowing molten candy into molten glass. Um, were there other techniques uh, of just being a cook that translated into? Well, there's blowing? casting. Also, there's casting of sugar. There's pulling of sugar, and there's spinning of sugar. So, uh, like angel hair, like cotton candy, yeah, is actually a component of really spun sugar. So, what they're doing to this machine is that you're, you're they're forcing it with some air. To come out as fast as possible, whereas with sugar I do it. I bring it up to uh, 310 degrees, let it cool a little, and then I'll take a wire whip that I actually cut the tips off of it. Yeah. So it has about 30 different tips of it, and then I'll uh, what would you call it? just dip it in there, and then over a couple of wooden ro- trowels, uh, you'll have this thin, very thin, uh, fibery types of sugar. Yeah. Which then you can make into uh, angel hair. Oh, awesome. I mean, then are there things in candy that you can't do in glass or, you know, conversely? I actually have seen guys spin glass. Um, the B team has probably done say, some, yeah. some spun, you know, uh, friends of ours that uh, they've, they've done some very uh, theatrical stuff with glass. 
So, uh, you know, it's a, it's, you know, glass is a liquid. You know, I mean, maybe everybody thinks, you know, we think of glass as a liquid. You know, the bottle that's sitting on your table, it just happens to be frozen right now. At about 1,000 degrees, it's frozen to the state that it's in now. But we could take that glass and any glass that you have on your table uh, and put it back into flux. So you could melt it down. Yeah. So, I mean, I hope your restaurants don't get that hot. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> we might have an AC bill to prove it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, some more about the process. You know, you're sitting there taking the powder, melting the powder, creating glass, blowing the glass. I've seen videos of you, Ander, um, rolling the glass at the end of the pole. Uh, mm-hmm. What is that process called? Uh, well, I guess generally forming the glass. I mean, you init- the initial act is to gather it up um, on the end of the rod. It's sitting in a giant coffee pot of sorts, and uh, you spin the pipe in the in the glass and the the metal's much colder, so it kind of cools the glass initially around it, and then that adheres to the metal. You pull it out, and you can keep doing that multiple times to get more and more, but basically it's the same. Once once you have the amount you need, then you the, the whole, the most important thing of it is that you basically get it on center and keep it hot. And uh, so there's a real heavy time component to it. You... I mean, again, you can reheat it and reheat it and reheat it. But actually, oddly enough, most, at least technically demanding things, um, if you, like even making a wine glass, if you want it to look really nice on the outside, you do have to do it kind of quickly because when you reheat it, the surface gets hot. Yeah. You can get away with it, but if you, if you took two side by side, one that you reheated five times, one you reheated once, you could probably see there's a little bit less marking on the surface. I mean, it's it's subtle, but if... Or, you know, if it's a two hundred fifty dollar wine glass, it's 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 what you want to shoot for. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. So you you're basically you center it with various uh, tools. Always, you know, they're all kind of unusual tools because it's so hot. It's a lot of wet wood and wet newspaper, metal hand tools. You can't touch it at all. So you're kind of always got an intermediary thing, and uh, it's kind of far away from you, relatively far. But uh, I mean, compared to wood or ceramics, so. Uh, and it, I, I actually think of it as going quite quickly. There's timing, the timing and teamwork. You're always working, almost exclusively working with at least one other person, and uh, you got to work well together. And uh, they got to read your body language and so on. And you can. Wow, it kind of seems like a kitchen, huh? It is. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I have worked in kitchens, not super high-end kitchens, but there is, you know, you got to know what's behind your back, so you don't pour something on somebody. Yeah, there's definitely stuff. a dance involved. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, even walking into Andrew's studio, um, it looks like a bread bakery. Uh, yeah. To a point. They actually, yeah. a lot, there are some similarities in heat removal technology. We would love to find a, an old bakery to move into. Yeah. Save on cooling costs. Yeah. We don't use an AC, but the fan, and it's nice to be cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what I kind of uh, found interesting is. Uh, you talking about how much time it takes to make a glass. Mm. Food, you know, obviously takes a certain amount of time too. But a glass, you sit there and reuse, reuse, reuse. Mm. Um, say if you don't eat all of the food, maybe you can make it into a second dish. If a glass breaks, can you make it into another glass? Yes. Um, if it doesn't have any uh, color in it that yeah. would contaminate the, origin- the, the next batch, you actually always want to use a little bit of 
clearer melt uh, actual glass in you, when you mix in the powder. So kind of like a starter for bread? Exactly, yeah. yeah, exactly. So you toss that in. And actually, the best, you can't make really great glass without what's called cullet, the, the broken wine glasses. Like, you can't, it just, it also always amazes me. Every time I, I, I use, you have a limited amount of it because you hopefully you don't break, you yeah. know, don't waste too much. And that's not waste, but so if you get the right amount of that in there in, in, into the, the raw material mixed together in the right way, the next day it's like, it's just uh, fluffier. Yeah. That's a, a, a good li- imagine fluffy. Liquid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a sponge. Yeah. But uh, I mean, do you guys, well, Michael, do you forge your own restaurant for broken glasses to then be able to use in your glass blowing? No, no, no. Actually, when I wake up at Urban, it's all done for me. I don't have my own studio. Yeah. So it's, for me, it's quite easier. You know, I come and go as I please with there. I rent the space and I'm done when I'm done. Yeah. Um, you know, maintaining a studio is a lot more work. Yeah. Absolutely. And you got a couple of kitchens to be maintaining at yeah, the same time. Yeah. But I mean, is that something that glass blowers? Uh, well, does it intrigue them to use used glass rather than just powdered glass initially? Yeah. Well, each glass is different. Every, you know, every manufacturer has different components. You can't mix and match glasses um, per se. I mean, not, I mean, super experimental weird stuff, but uh, mostly either they would create incompatibility issues. So you have to, if you found 10,000 of the same bottle, you could remelt that like, in a lot of uh, in Africa and South America, they have a lot of studios that do run off of totally recycled beer bottles. But it's not great glass. Glass that's made in a fa- in a you know mass-produced factory is intended to cool down really quickly off the machine. So if it's going to be handmade, it's not that great to work with. Yeah, but they'll, yeah. they'll add some stuff to it to kind of bring it, give it a little more life. But just strictly recycled glass really is not that great. When you got to if you want nice blowing glass, it's usually mixed with some fresh. You know, there's a component of both. So, so, so it's about a pure ingredient. Yeah, well, if you want an example of uh, recycled glass, the Patron bottles. Yeah. yeah it's, oh, it's, really? Yeah, they're they're all recycled glass. Huh. Interesting. So you can see all the bubbles and all the stuff in it. Yeah. So I mean, that the tequila kills it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tequila kills all. Uh, I've, I've learned that a, a couple times, or so I think, or I kind of remember. Um, Anders was talking about all these tools that you have to use during glass blowing, and I was wondering if that was a hard thing for you to learn, Michael, uh, initially, because I mean, cooking is a hands-on thing. I know you have tongs, I know you have, you know, a knife, but sometimes, yeah, especially pizza making, you got to get your hands in it. Um, was it's it interesting to? It's a lot of hand. You know, you, both of them have a lot of eye-hand coordination. Obviously, if, I mean, from the early days, you know, taking a piece of chicken. You know, with a pair of tongs in in your hand. Yeah. You know, if you don't hit the chicken, you know, and you, if you don't put it down in the pan properly, chances are your arms are going to look like you know Swiss cheese after a while, yeah. from all that oil spattering up. So there is a lot of tools. You know that um, you know we both use tools. I actually have brought some culinary tools into the uh, into the glass blowing. Oh yeah. You know, we bought some you know spatulas in. We bought some tongs in. You know, uh, on some early experiments, we were melting stuff very fast. Yeah. You know, <laughs> aluminum tongs just don't hold up, yeah. you know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, what is it, like a tenth of the degree in, yeah, in difference? Yeah. I mean, the, uh, in a kitchen, an oven, an oven gets to what, maybe oh, 550. Well, my, my pizza, pizza oven. oven gets to 1,000 degrees, which we could use as a big garage. Yeah. Because you know, a garage is what you hold, uh, you know, cane work and colors and stuff like that. 
So we, you know, anytime you could, if you were close enough, we could actually roll up a yeah. a big piece of cane. So work. do you ever reprimand any of your cooks for complaining it's too hot in the kitchen by um, bringing them down to the studio? You know, I have come back from the urban glass many times, and you know, having a long, you know, you, when you blow glass, it's normally at least four to six hours, and you know, you've you've had your, you know, the heat gets to you after a while. And then you come back into the kitchen where the hottest thing is 500 <laughs> degrees, and they're complaining. So you got a lot of nerve. Yeah. You're going to come with me next time. Yeah. <laughs> I'll show you what hot is. <laughs> I mean, maybe you should transition now back into the kitchen and show all these guys up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually really don't like the heat. It's actually my biggest complaint, but I've worked really hard to uh, alleviate <laughs> that. I put Quell that complaint. Well, no more. I just do everything I can to make it cool in the shop. and. It, um, I, most of the world stops. Uh, it's fine, actually. If if it's under eighty, oh, it's fine. It's no problem. Yeah. It, it, which in, in the summer, this summer especially, was pretty rough. So, it's 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 just once it breaks eighty, it's it's pretty difficult. I, I can't even concept that. Because, yeah, I'm used to the hot yeah. temperature in the because, kitchen. I mean, kitchens always about a hundred. I actually yeah. think the kitchen's worse because you're usually covered yeah. in a film of grease. I just right. don't Absolutely. like. Yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how to say glass in Spanish. Otherwise, I would have blurted it out. There it is. There it is. Um, it's interesting that you incorporated kitchen tools. Um, do you ever incorporate glass blowing tools back into the kitchen? The glass blowing tools that we have normally they are uh, more forcep type things, and uh, they really wouldn't transfer. Yeah. Um, a lot of the tools that we have are either for cutting or for shaping. And at that point, I don't need a, a diamond shear to cut the <laughs> lamb chop. Yeah. And I don't know, do I need a, a wooden block to shape the meatball? Yeah. So, no, we don't need, that doesn't go the other way. Yeah. Wet newspaper? Yeah. I've done uh, some parties in the in the glass shop, though, where we'll cook, which is pretty common, you know, get goofy. And I, I had one, actually, a friend of mine was a chef, a uh, pretty famous chef. He was Madonna chef for a little while. <laughs> he came over and... He saw this all this extreme heat, and he thought, "Man, I could really sear some tuna in here." Yeah, <laughs> and uh, we set it up and oil, you know, cleaned some metal and oiled it up and turned it off for a little while. So it's probably like fifteen hundred degrees or something. The the reheating oven, and uh, he loved it. It was like frozen on the inside and pitch black on the outside. To me, it was a little much, but for him, it was, <laughs> for him, he was like, "I can't do this. I can't do this." And we did a pork loin in the in the annealer. I just had a big party. I mean, they do it. Uh, I was kind of inspired. They do it in Sweden. They do uh, traditional meals uh, around uh, in the furnace. They have these big festivals and lots of schnapps and stuff. And they cook the fish right on the furnace in foil. And uh, it's actually something I'd like to recreate at our studio. I'd like to attend. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll bring the fish. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I mean, a pizza in a, what, two twenty five hundred degree oven. How nah, long would that take? No, nah, nah. wouldn't. It would just burn up but immediately. It, it, at the end of the day, it, it cools down if you can, you know, wait till it's a thousand. Right. But it's it's not it's not ideal. It's just something for a party, you know. It's yeah. Fun, but, but I mean, I can yeah. see a secondary business. You run a pizza <laughs> shop, you know, on cool downs. Uh, exactly. For huh? me, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Michael, I'm... You got a space if you ever need there one. There you go. <laughs> I'll bring the dough. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Um, well, I mean, I'm finding this absolutely fascinating. Can keep on going forever. Um, is there anything you guys would like to interject? Because, you know, I'm limited in my glass blowing knowledge. Is Are there any new technologies, affects, ways you hope the industry to go or experiments that you'd like to try? Well, probably the, you know, the, one of the best, uh, one of the first 
people that came and made glass blowing so popular in America was a, a Muranese called Dino Tagliapietri. And he came and he actually worked with Dale Jahuli for a while. But he was the first Muranese to leave the island of Murano to teach Americans. And Lino is a great, great guy. Um, probably he, he will go down in, in, in time as a, as a legend in America. And how he's, how he's come here and, and taught so many people. I mean, glass blowing as small as a community as he is, um, it has, I mean, a lot more people are doing it than I would be, I would say, 50 years ago. Yeah. And it really has to do with Lino, you know, uh, coming here. And, uh, you know, I mean, years ago, there would be death squads that would leave the island of Murano, you know, if you left the island of Murano. And uh, he has, uh, you know, he himself has uh, gone through some, uh, you know, with his Muranese people. And, uh, you know, we really, uh, we really appreciate Lino and all his hard work. Yeah. And that's, that's the Italian aspect. That's the Italian. Well. That's the first Italian that ever came to America yeah. to teach uh, here. Yeah. And is there a Swedish legacy to glass blowing too? Yeah, there is a long history of Swedish glass. They weren't so uh, hung up on holding a deer, but um, they come, Swedes come here. There's a number that come here and there's schools there. They have, they're much more open about it and they don't, it's a long tradition of it as well, but uh, there's not the mystique in the same way. Yeah. It's part of the heritage there, but it's little little different yeah more utilitarian i would i would say but. now do you think there is a difference between swedish and italian glass blowing or even in like swedish and italian cuisine are there certain dishes made yeah. via glass blowing or vessels made yeah yeah definitely there's just stylistically they're much usually much different there's some crossover but they're very usually different yeah and you know, the, the Italian cane work, it seems a bit more, a little bit more flourishy than the, the Swedish. Where the Swedish is all very, very precise, you know, and there's a lot of more cut work, mm-hmm. I think, in the, in the Swedish glass than there is in Italian. Yeah, and is that seen in IKEA? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, actually, IKEA glass mo- looks a lot more Swedish than it does Italian. It looks a lot more. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't cost as much. No, <laughs> not at all. Um, mm-hmm. Well, since, you know, we're at Heritage, you know, Radio Network, let's talk about food for a second. Swedish cuisine, Italian cuisine. Just interject. Just tell me a little bit about your favorite things to eat that people, you know, should be privy to but don't know in Brooklyn or New York. Um, I mean, Italian cuisine, everyone thinks it's pasta, pizza, this. Are there some traditional dishes that, you know, resonate with you or your family? or Things, things that have become popular... Uh for me is uh, more old style dishes the, the what they call cucina della nona which is uh, older oh, the grandma you know, yeah. slow, slower cooking you know uh, at a certain point we got into this saute thing that it took two seconds to make I mean you can never get the flavors of uh, something that's braised for three hours or you know so really I'm, that's really more the impetus of my cuisine these days I'm trying really more not to uh, whether it be in my sauces or on actually pieces of protein themselves, just to be a little bit more slower cooking. Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of translates into glass itself. You know, talking about having to have it in the oven overnight, let it sit there, fester, and grow. There you I go. Mean, there's something to be said for taking your time and Let's slow it down. Yeah, slow and low with glass blowing too. Well, I just wanted to thank you both for being on the show, uh, Anders Reistad. Spell it again. R-Y-D-S-T-E-D-T. Dot com. Michael Ayub. 
A Y O U B. Google both of these for Nino restaurants in uh, Williamsburg and Park Slope. Hope you guys. Uh, well, I was going to say hope you guys blow, but <laughs> <laughs> I actually do. Thanks for listening to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Just a shout out to Jack Inslee, our producer, Nat Wiener, our engineer. Fairway again for sponsoring the show and Roberta's Pizza.com in Bushwick, Brooklyn for you know, giving us a great little house in their backyard. Hope to have you listening next Tuesday, 3 p.m. Cheers. Thanks so much. <laughs>